Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. family welcome to this week's episode of the inspired evolution this week we have on dr bessel van der kolk he wrote the book called the body keeps a score he is a member of many prestigious universities in the states written over 150 journal articles on trauma and how to heal from trauma in this episode we basically dive deep on trauma and how it's stored in the body and what causes trauma and what causes it to be stored in the body. So the first half of the podcast, we basically spend talking about trauma, how it happens, how we store it, how it actually ends up in the body. And the second half of the podcast is dedicated towards healing and all the different modalities that we have for healing. This podcast really surprised me in terms of what the healing modalities that are most effective um, for, for people that are trying to recover from trauma. Um, it is not what I expected. Um, having said that, once he started explaining all of this, I wasn't surprised. So there's a really yummy episode um, about trauma and healing. If you want to know more about trauma or if you're you know passionate about healing, tune into this conversation. As always, the invitation to subscribe um, to the Inspired Evolution means a lot to us to stay connected to you. As you know, connection is my highest value. Um, and if you love this video, hit like, leave us a comment, Comment below. Um, I love engaging with you on the comments. Some of the conversations um, that are happening in the comment sections to some of these YouTube videos on the Inspired Evolution have been completely life-changing for me personally, and I know for those tuning in as well. So stay connected, stay inspired, keep evolving, tune in to a very yummy episode with Dr. Vessel van der Kolk. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution, a show dedicated to helping you actually live the life that you love. I'm your host, Amrit Sandhu, international speaker, global coach, and loving podcaster. As a gift for tuning into this podcast, I have something really special just for you. 
My premium short course, which can teach you how to meditate in just seven days. You can download it now at www.inspiredevolution.com forward slash learn. That's www.inspiredevolution.com forward slash learn. Learn how to meditate in just seven days. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this powerfully insightful conversation. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the latest episodes launching every Monday designed to help you live the life you love and keep you inspired to evolve. I think it's all angels just walk by. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution, and it is a blessing to be here today. We have with us Dr. Bessel Vanderkoe. Doctor, how are you? This morning. Thank you. So, Dr. Be- for those tuning in for the first time, Dr. Bessel Vanderkoe, he's a Boston-based psychiatrist and a New York Times best-selling author of a wonderful little book not so little, but a wonderful little book called The Body Keeps the Score. He was previously the president of the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, professor of psychiatry at Boston University Medical School, and medical director of the Trauma Center. He has taught at universities around the world. His work's been featured in places such as Time, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and more. It is such a treat to have you here today. Thank you so much for making time. Good to be in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) remotely in this new world that we live in. Doctor, I don't want to dilly-dally too much. So tell me, Bessel, what is, how do you define trauma? Trauma is an experience that just overwhelms your system. Basically, I like to, in a crude way, say, you go, oh, shit. And there's really nothing you can do. Uh, you're supposed to fight or you're supposed to flee or you're supposed to do something and there's nothing you can do. And you sort of give up, you shut down and and then it becomes traumatic if that experience keeps coming back and if you keep feeling that way. So we all have had an experience like that, but hopefully it doesn't become traumatic and something becomes traumatic is that something happens in your mind and brain that cannot let go of it and that doesn't doesn't allow you to say, okay, that happened last year or 20 years ago, but it feels like it's still happening today. Hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what it is that's, um, why are we holding, like what is, like what is the process of the mind? Why is it holding on to, um, some of these things and not letting think, go potentially on some the of these core system gone awry. Basically, uh, uh, we all create maps of the world uh, that tell us on a very deep level, largely unconscious, what is safe, what's dangerous. Uh, when you go into cafeteria, you choose some food. Why you choose that food over something else, God knows, but there is something in your system that says, that food is better than that food. And then you have an option of sitting at what table and you choose to sit at that table and not that table. Maybe because sometime, a long time ago, somebody who had a yellow dress on, you didn't like particularly well, so you're going to sit with somebody with a blue dress. You know, it's all things that are automatic reactions. You know, 
Why do you choose that car and not that car? Why do you choose that book? And these are all, we have a map in the world what is safe, what is dangerous. What is, and so we have all these little systems in our brain that, that create a map of where we need to go. And if something bad happens, you get a very strong reaction of don't go there. Uh, so you get a very strong warning signal uh, of don't hang out with guys or don't, hang, don't do sex or whatever because that is dangerous. And these stimuli sometimes generalize. And then it becomes too large so that anybody who looks a particular way or anything that sounds a particular way becomes a source of danger and your body reacts with a, with a uh, hormonal output and physiological output that makes you freeze or makes you upset or angry uh, as a warning sign. So, so it is all, in evolution, really, it was all meant to create systems that help to guide you through life. But if the system becomes too extreme, um, it actually messes it up. And then, and then mm. you know, then any anything to remind you of something makes you feel as if you're in mortal danger. But you don't know. See, you, it's not like you're not aware of it. You, you just go like uh, uh, anything. You go like. No, I hate people who have turbans on. I hate people who have Dutch accents or uh, and why? So, I don't know. I just hate those people. You know, like uh, so. It's a very primitive uh, response of the of the human organism. Now, if you have ever adopted a dog from a pound, uh, you know that dog has been abused. Like my daughter just uh, got a dog from a pound, and she puts her tail between her legs whenever she sees. Uh, my daughter's Australian-born red-haired husband, and the dog just becomes terrified. Uh, and clearly something happened to that dog uh, before he went to the pound. That was terrible. But, you know, it's very much how, how human beings are. Like, it's an automatic, very primitive response. Hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for articulating that. And so from there, what I'm hearing is it's somewhat in our, like it's our, it's the map of the world that we navigate. It's in our subconscious and we're not entirely conscious of how we're navigating um, based on some of this, um, these traumatic experiences that drop in and they form, I don't want to use the word prejudice, but kind of like a, like a sort of um, not even a hindrance, but just a skew, if you will. But, the way that we, we navigate the world. Always based originally on, on you're trying to protect yourself. And you think, oh, mm, safety was the original idea. Like, yeah, you had to shut yourself down. Yes, you had no choice. But then later on, when someone puts your head on your shoulder and you feel like you're getting killed, then that response is really um, uh, become a detriment and it really gets in the way of you having a life. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hmm. Mm. Do we do these experiences generally have to be extreme yeah. experiences? Um, yeah. Like I know you said it has to be overwhelming, or can it be an everyday? No, no, these are really things about um, very life-threatening experience. Like you really feel like your life has come to an end. But I don't know, I don't know if you have kids. Do you have kids? Oh, no. no, I think I, I, I don't mean to be prejudicial here, but. Um, you really know very little about life until you have kids. Kids are these creatures that need to find their way in the world. And um, kids have very catastrophic reactions. Huh? Uh, and so kids all the time feel like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. That's how do you respond? And then you have parents who pick you up and they rock you and they sing to you and they hold you. And then you feel calm again. And so at that point... It's very important to have uh, people around you to calm you down when you feel overwhelmed. And that, to some degree, continues throughout your life. And to some degree, as long as you have people in your life who are really there for you, the likelihood that you'll really get traumatized is sharply decreased. It's not not that it disappears, but uh, we know, of course, a lot about trauma in war and men. Uh, uh, and they do okay as long as their bodies, their best friends are all there for them. But when you see your best friend getting blown up, <sighs> so it's it's also very relational uh, because uh, humans need each other to make themselves feel safe. Uh, and and most of us, uh, if you're lucky, we find people to be with and spiritual beliefs that where we feel at home. Where as long as we're there. We feel fundamentally taken care of and safe. And then we can put up with a lot of stuff. Uh, actually, it's interesting. There was a, some studies came out of Israel uh, that the more of a religious fanatic you were, the less likely you were to get traumatized. <laughs> you know, huh. uh, because you have a sense of Because you get this community. deep sense of there is meaning to everybody and some God or something is on my side. And so even if terrible things happen to you, you can still have a deep feeling like it's okay. Uh, I don't advocate it. I don't think fanaticism is really the best answer to human problems, actually. But but if you happen to be a fanatic and you happen to listen to it, count yourself lucky, you're less likely to get traumatized. <laughs> 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 gotcha. Yeah. So that's really fascinating. Um, this whole idea of having your best friend around or having community people that you can yeah. count on, um, actually being an instrumental part of your, um, your, I don't want to call it coping mechanism, but that's ability to system. handle traumatic experiences. It's very elementary. Mm -hmm. That's very much at the core of, of ourselves. And then, so what becomes most traumatic 
is if the people who you love and count on, if they do terrible things to you. And then, mm -hmm. and of course, many people can relate to that, the greatest, deepest hurt is to be brutalized by the people we love. Mm. And that's where it seems like, especially if those are your parents or loved ones early on. Um, people or seem to or in your spiritual things. community. Um, uh, that mm. may happen there also. And so one of the things um, I found pretty radical when I read the book was trauma getting stored in the body. There's actual physical changes that your brain undergoes um, after the post-traumatic, like through the traumatic experience, like your brain is well, actually different. Yeah. Having so, so, so my book's called The Body Keeps Score. And you experience in your body, but the famous... Uh, uh, neuroscientist Joe Ledoux said, Vessel, you don't keep it in your body, it's all in your brain. And I go, I said, technically you're correct, Joe, but you're experiencing your body. Huh? Charles Darwin mm. already wrote about it 150 years ago that when people are really upset or animals are really upset, you feel it in the form of heartache and gut wrenching sensations in your body. Huh? Mm. It's a very somatic experience. Yeah. And those are quite universal experiences that we feel like, you know, the 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 hurting heart or the, the real gut sort of every language in the know, world yeah. has words for heartache and gut wrench. I check <laughs> whenever I travel to one more exotic place after another and ask, How do you say heartache? You go, like, oh, okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah, because there's um then it sort of implies that uh, me to lead the question that, hey, is there certain uh, parts of the body that are associated with different, like different traumatic, like, like in traumatic experiences? Yeah, it's, it's very much that, that it's that sensation of your innards churning away. And in fact, uh, what the research also shows is that if you have been traumatized, the likelihood that you'll actually get actual bowel problems, that you get actually heart problems, actually sharply increases. So basically, what happens is when something terrible happens to you, you get these signals to your body, like get the hell out of here. So your so normal response mm -hmm. to something bad is to fight or to flee. But if you get a fight or flee, these sensations come into your body, urging you to do something, but you can't because somebody holds you down or you're trapped or whatever. And then the sensations continue and really wear away at your, at your nervous system and wear away in your body. Um, because the function of your brain is actually to make sure that you're okay. So the function of these stress hormones is to get you the hell out of there. But if you cannot get out of there, the system may get stuck and keep sort of producing all that stress stuff so that your body actually becomes a chronically traumatized body. Hmm. So in terms of getting out of situations, it seems like that's kind of this, this linchpin moment within the traumatic experience that you have. If you can't get out, you're kind of stuck. How much of a role does helplessness play? So helplessness is one sensation, but because we're such social creatures, the other one is betrayal. And a very core element of trauma is a feeling of 
God-forsakenness. So when I wrote my previous book with my Australian friends, Alexander McFarlane, we kept using the word God-forsaken. And our editor kept changing mm. it to lonely. And we kept saying, no, not lonely, God-forsaken is the word. <laughs> yeah. And it's like you're bereft. There's nobody there. And you're just like, you're on your own. Like, yeah. Mm, that is quite, yeah, that is, even as you're feeling that, I can feel the sensations as my body, just yeah. the way you're articulating that, actually. Um, so the nervous system, tell us a little bit about its role in kind of processing trauma, modulating trauma, like what's going on? Well, there? you know, again, it's really hang out with kindergarten teachers because they know all this stuff. They, they, they deal with and little mm. babies are like little animals with a little bit of a prefrontal cortex, and occasionally they're rational, and occasionally they're, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so basically, you know, we have brains to make our way in the world, and it starts off very primitive without much thinking. And But the basic function of your brain is to help you to negotiate your life and to make sure that your body is okay. So the first order of business for your brain is to say, Time to eat, time to sleep, time to uh, take a rest, time to get to work. But basically, the function of your brain is to have a functioning body. And in the Western world, and I don't know if that's different in the world that you come from, I wouldn't be so sure, uh, we tend to sort of ignore what's below your chin and just think that we're just a bunch of brains with a... With a appendage that eats too much <laughs> but in fact we are our bodies uh, and and that's who we are and, and so uh, in the culture that we live in and certainly australia also i'm always impressed how similar australia is to the us you guys may not be glad to hear that but uh, <laughs> very similar culture um people get very in the in their head and as if see the body as an inconvenience that needs to be taken care of and that's that's uh, not that's really not a very good uh, way of living basically yeah? Uh, yeah so does that orientation of being more head-based itself pose um I don't want to use the word threat, but challenge of becoming more readily traumatized. I'm thinking about the word resilience a little bit here. If I'm spending more and more time in my head and engaging with the thoughts and not recognizing my body, and let's say potentially I've pent yeah. up um, <laughs> things that I'm not looking at, am I compromised? Yeah. And life is its own, and you are writing your book, and then suddenly you get constipated or you suddenly have a panic reaction, or you cannot sleep, or something. And so your body will send signals to you like, hey, hey, pay attention to me. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Fascinating. And does trauma, so one of the things I'd love to explore is also the, the rational mind. And you mentioned this slightly. What, a the rational mind? We have a rational mind. <laughs> you have a rational mind. <laughs> listen, listen here now. 
<laughs> you clearly have not lived in America much. during the past few years. <laughs> like. <laughs> 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 well, to be honest with you, okay, it's, it's, Australia is definitely not that uh, in that sort of situation, but it's it's not too much different. Like you're saying, it is similar in many ways. Um, so we have our rational mind, but then trauma doesn't really link to our, or what is the link between the rational mind and the trauma that we experience? Like, is trauma rational? No, is it just no, it, it, you know. I will, you know, I've, I've, particularly last, after the last few years in America, um, I'm very skeptical about the rational mind. You know, we may, we often, and you know, you're coming from India originally. Um, you know how people can explain anything and they can justify anything. And you can go on a rampage and kill thousands of people. You say, that's good for them. They're very, it's a good thing to do. So we, we use our rational brain. Our rational brain is marvelous. And we can build bridges and books and do wonderful things. But our rational brain um, can also, it's very self-serving, you know. Um, uh, we always explain things in our favor. Um, uh, the rational brain is not a truth teller. The rational brain mm. is primarily there to get along with other people and to get your stuff done. Uh, so, uh, but the rational brain is, is quite untrustworthy, actually, in many ways. Hmm. I'm always hearing it's a, it's a validator. So it validates bits of information. Yeah, it, it explains things. things. Huh? And, and so you and I are using our rational brains as well as we can right now. So, and so we try to bridge that gap between Melbourne and Boston, um, you know, and, and we're doing pretty well, I think. You know? But 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 we try to find the words to bridge the gaps. But uh, somebody else may be listening to us and say, "These guys are full of malarkey." <laughs> I was going to say, hopefully those tuning in feel like we're being pretty rational. <laughs> At the end, the body tells the truth in a way. Let me measure your stress hormones. And you may smile a lot, but I want to see your physiology to see if you're indeed calm and relaxed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah. So let's talk about like that, that aspect of the body. So because we're talking about, okay, it's not stored in the rational mind. Is it there's a part, is there a part of the head which is directly connected to the body from your research um, that is well, that is responsible? You know, for, everything for is connected, but there are particular areas of, of your brain uh, mm. that this are my question. particularly connected. Most of all, of course, the hypothalamus and the, and the pituitary that, that sort of send the stress hormones and the hormones to your body to stay in homeostasis. But uh, another very important uh, part of the brain is a brain called a part called the insula, and the insula basically tells you uh, what is going on in your body and what you need to do to take care of it, the messages from your body. Uh, for example, uh, mm. let's say after you and I talk, uh, I may need to go and get some food, and I, my insula will give me a message of, oh, it is cold out there and will make me feel what your body feels like when it's cold. And then I'll say, okay, I better wear my parka because it's snowing outside here, not where you are, but where I am. Uh, so I need to wear mm. something warm. And if you, I say, at the moment I say parka to you, you go like, 
Hell no, I'm not going to wear a parka. I'm going to sweat my my butt off, you know. And so so you mm. get it that insulin gives you the sensation of what it would be like and gives you a sense of what you need to do to take care of yourself. And so mm. you should not wear a parka, and I should, and our insulin will tell us that. But when you get traumatized, these signals can get very distorted. Disrupted. So you hear uh, in the newspaper sometimes you read, oh, isn't it funny in that town over there, a woman thought she was growing obese and it turns out she had a baby. And everybody says, isn't it funny? And I would go, oh, that's not funny at all, actually. That is very, very sad. If you don't know the difference between what it's like to, to be fat and to have a baby. It means that if something in your... Uh, awareness of your internal self that is completely screwed up. Mm. And how you get there, mm. that is usually trauma. Right? Because mm. if you're not traumatized, you have a loving relationship to your body, hopefully. Right? If you get traumatized, your body keeps sending you signals, I'm in danger, I'm scared, uh, I'm enraged, and you try to push that down. Because you don't like the sensation for your body, so what do people do? They starve themselves, they take drugs, they become compulsive long-distance runners in order to somehow manage the sensations in their bodies. Mm. But if you feel safe mm. and secure in the world, you don't need to manage the sensations in your body because you have a harmonious relationship with yourself. So have you explored some of... Um the in modern day society it seems like uh like body dysmorphia and like people generally have um sort of an idea in their head what their bodies should look like and potentially is that causing more of a disconnect for some people rather than connecting yeah that's to that'd be like you know when it comes to dance of psychiatry to give it the title uh and then they call it a disorder but uh there's so you know if you starve yourself or you uh drink all the time not uncommon where you live. Uh, uh, you try to to abolish certain sensations that you don't want to have. So the mm. body dysmorphic piece is just one small expression of all of that. Mm -hmm. Becoming uh, becoming morbidly obese is also very much related to people uh, feeling safer in a body that does not attract any attention from anybody in a sexual way, for example. Who mm. underpins that initial idea of this will provide me safety, and then from there it yeah. kind of perpetuates. And you kind the of... way you put it is more rational than it really is, more cognitive than it really is. It's a decision that gets made on a very elementary level of your being. Not mm. like, oh, let me just become mm. obese. Not like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. So one of the to sort of segue because I do want to segue into how to manage um, uh, trauma and or manage trauma, but like I guess healing is probably where I want to go. But yeah, sort of just, good word. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to I wanted to sort of share um, a story with you, which is, and you might have heard this. There's a there's a um, there's a there's a monk, and he wants to cross the river. And he's sitting under he's he's sitting by the river and the river's quite um turbulent. 
and he's reflecting on how he's going to cross this river. His journey lies across the river up the mountain. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. I think so. And um, and from there, he's he he sort of looks at how do I actually get across and. He, he doesn't have an idea, so he sits under the tree, meditates on it, thinks about it for a while, and he decides, I got it. I'm going to build a raft, right? So he builds this gorgeous raft, like this amazing raft. He puts it together, his own ingenuity, and he builds this raft and he crosses the river and he makes it across to the other side. And having made it across to the other side of the river through this, like, this incredible thing which he never thought he would be able to cross, as he gets up and leaves the riverbank, he actually puts the raft on his back because he's so mm. proud of, you know, the the, mm. the 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 crossing of the river and this in, ingenious thing that helped him cross this amazing river. And then he starts to go and wade on his journey up the mountain through the forest. And then he gets through a part of the forest where there's just trees everywhere. And as he's trying to navigate his way through the trees, he's damaging the raft and the raft is kind of, and it's, he's hurting himself because he's trying to navigate through the trees with the raft. And it gets to a point where he he realizes that he actually can't carry on on his journey um, with the raft on his back because the raft is causing less mobility. It's, it's harder to navigate. And at some point he has the realization that, oh, okay, it's not actually about having the raft. It's about having the capability of knowing that I can build a raft whenever I need to. And then he puts down the raft and then carries on his journey um, furthermore. And I found that to be quite a, quite a profound yeah, little parable, parable about the things that also we hold for, on for to. Also for trauma. Uh, yeah. uh, indeed, it's like you have a raft. Uh, and indeed... There is some deep level of a sense of um, being at home with all the stuff you built up internally. Like, I'm better off not being close to people. I'm better off uh, um, pushing people away. I'm better off not leaving my house. I'm and then all these defenses indeed get in the way of your having a life. That's, very much how it is. The question is, how do you help people to lay down that raft? And, like, and, and, and yeah. I, love, I love the story, actually, because when you work with traumatized people, um, you and you really listen, you really develop enormous admiration for how they have survived. Always mm. like, uh, oh my God, I have no idea if I would have been able to survive what happened to you. I mean, one story is worse than the next story, you know? And so people have been very ingenious in being able to survive horrendous situations, but they have that raft on their shoulder. That's true. Hmm. Yeah. So let's go to healing from there, if we may. Um, so how, how do we put down the raft? How do we even recognize the raft? Where do we well, begin? <laughs> One thing I say more and more these days, as more and more people say, this is how you do it, uh, and I found the answer, I, I say more, I say <laughs> the official world of trauma studies is only 30 years old. Mm. So mm. we're still very much on a journey of exploration, and anybody who tells you they have the answer, uh, really don't trust them. Uh, uh, you know, 
I am over 70 years old. I just started a whole new project. Uh, I'm studying psychedelic therapies these days. Huh? And every day I learn stuff that I never knew before. Uh, and 10 years ago, you would have said, I, psychedelic therapies, I said, ah, don't talk nonsense to me, you know. So keep, keep mm. people evolving. And what is also impressive to me is how in every culture, every culture has their own indigenous ways of dealing with trauma. Because people have been traumatized as long as there have been people. For eons, yeah. When yeah, I travel, yeah. I'm always very curious about, like, you know, uh, I've been to Australia many times, like uh, probably about 20 times, uh, but I don't know what indigenous healing methods the, the Aboriginals have. But somebody should go find out, because I'm sure they have indigenous methods. Huh? And I learned this particularly in South Africa when I sort of hang out with Bishop Tutu a little bit, and I saw him do beautiful work, singing, moving, dancing, praying with people. That's completely different from what we do in Boston. And he was clearly, a very major healing was going on by getting people into rhythms together. Now, in our culture, oh. we don't do rhythms, therapeutically. Australia, yeah. you know, I love Australia, but I think people are even more rigid in exploring new things than people in the U.S. Like, I'm always surprised by how how organized you guys are over there. Uh, and you're sort of very spontaneous people. But but when it comes to therapy, I'm always like, hey, push the envelope a little bit. Uh, um, and so... So, so it's very a question of, of an exploration. How do people gain a sense of safety? Uh, and so part of safety mm. for human beings is holding and touch. In therapy, uh -huh. we never do holding and touch. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I might touch your hand as I hand uh, you your yeah. prescription for yeah. drugs. <laughs> like, what's she trying to do? I've tried her sex with <laughs> well, uh, yeah. And so this yeah. whole elementary source of safety is not part of the of the therapy world. And uh, touch can be extremely helpful. The second thing is movement. And again, I, I like to always say kindergarten teachers know how to do that. Kids are scared, frightened, upset, and mad all the time. But what do kindergarten teachers do with kids? They sing together, and they move together, and they throw balls together. And so simple rhythmical activities make you feel in tune and in touch with the people around you. So mm. you know, you you hang out with various uh, spiritual uh, communities, and for me, it would be interesting to see. So what do these guys do to to Make to create an internal sense of harmony, and so you feel like you're yeah. part of a larger universe. And uh, mo many spiritual communities, of course, rely very heavily on chanting and mm -hmm. getting your voice in sync with other voices is an enormously comforting thing for our internal world. What I've seen in my lifetime actually is that people sing less and less. Because we have these great mm. sound systems, so we depend on it coming in rather than producing it. And I think that's a, a very sad movement in our world, actually. Um, I think, uh, and it's, so, so 
trauma is about being out of sync with the people around you and living with an internal reality that is no longer here. So mm. the, 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 the pair of trauma becomes helping people to be in sync with the people around them and to be here. I think any technique or modality that gets people there uh, is likely to be very helpful. For example, I'm very intrigued with tango dancing. You know, I was invited to mm-hmm. Argentina, and, you know, as a person in Melbourne, uh, sort of interesting, in 1900, the two richest cities in the world were Melbourne and Buenos Aires. Uh, 120 oh. years later, Melbourne is still one of the richest cities in the world, and Buenos Aires is, is not very doing very well at all. Because there's trauma there, mm. horrendous trauma, and um, and you go to Melbourne and you go to to various areas and you see how how much misery there's been and brutality there's been, and then you see the tango dancing. You say these people learn to tango, dance the tango not because it's fun or it looks very good for tourists, it's because they have to. It is one way of getting mm. your body in sync with another body. And to feel a rhythm mm. of belonging and togetherness, that is sort of the opposite of trauma. Right? Trauma mm. is when unexpected things overwhelm you. Uh, harmony is when you do things that are very attuned, subtly attuned to the people around you, when you feel like you're an indispensable part of a larger universe. Wow. Did not expect it to go there. So some of the <laughs> indigenous modalities that we're talking about in terms of um, finding our healing are touching and movement-based therapies and singing yeah. together. Um, and these are, and this is what your research is, is uncovering that these are th- these are these are practices that are actually supporting people back the from these traumatic I, I places. Take a little. That's not where my research research is leading me, because. Your research mm. only can do what is socially acceptable and can get funded in the culture you live in. There's no <sighs> way I can get money to study tango dancing in a serious scientific way. <laughs> yeah. It's got off the deep end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, interesting. we're virtually prescribed what we can do. Talking is okay, drugs is okay. But mm. I, I like to say these days, more and more, like, the more immobile you are, the more respectable you are. The moment you start talking about moving, you're like, Ugh. <laughs> isn't that a trauma in itself? What you're saying, movement is. <laughs> what you're saying, movement is. Is. <laughs> uh, so yeah, interesting. So, how much of the um. Yeah, how much like as I'm as I'm hearing you share some of these indigenous modalities that you believe. Um, are supportive to navigating trauma then um, and healing let's, let's call it for what it is healing um yeah I, I i can't help but reflect in this moment just potentially just the the nuclear families that we live in less tribal less village oriented less community oriented in some ways um as being a somewhat of a is that is that a collective trauma well, in know, some ways uh, I, I see that differently i i see that we're evolving into different systems, and people are incredibly adaptable. 
can idealize mm. village culture. And I you know if you, when you were a kid, you had some experience with village culture. But village culture in India is not exactly where you hope your kids will grow up. Right? No, yeah. And there's a lot of cruelty, yeah. a lot of patriarchy, and a lot of dogma. A lot of stuff. Huh? And, and yeah. so, um, you know, to my cultural mind, I think life in Melbourne is about as good as it gets. You're able to make friends. <laughs> you're able to take your yoga class. Yeah. You're able to make your music. You're able to do all kinds of things. Um, so I think you guys have a pretty good, as the system goes, and they wouldn't say, oh, you're much better off living mm. in a Siberian shaman as the community where, where people, everybody's happy. Because people weren't. You know, like it, mm, so it mm, all depends mm. on, you can make misery everywhere and you can make happiness anywhere, depending on how respectful and in sync and open people are to each other, you know? Um, yeah. mm. So one of the things that also stood out for me is when we were talking about um, some of the the more indigenous ways to heal, you were talking about touch, you were talking about movement. Um, it seemed like there was a, a correlation to them not needing to be, but like uh, there being a positive impact of having someone else around, like being able to touch somebody else, like someone else holding you or being able to dance in rhythm with somebody else, singing in unison with others. Um, putting is your there, kids to bed, uh, lying in bed together, you know, all those elementary things. Mm -hmm. Is there modalities where... Uh, there doesn't need to be other people involved. Are there ways for self-healing that you would um, that you believe in? Um, yeah, it's, I'm surprised to hear you ask that of all people. Like uh, <laughs> we are communal creatures. Our brains are communal brains. Uh, the mm. the basic premise of current psychiatry and psychology is an individualistic premise. That you can mm. heal and mm. you can and <laughs> see that to my to my mind is real distortion about our human nature. Um, that none of us mm. do things by ourselves, none of us live by ourselves, unless you're really pretty weird. Um, and so to some degree everything is communal, but can you do things to um, to do things? Absolutely. And so one of the things I've studied extensively is uh, neurofeedback. If you have a brain that is sort of wired right now for danger and fear and being alert for stuff all the time, helping to uh, putting electrodes on your on your skull and harvesting the brain waves underneath it, and then playing computer games with your own brain to reward uh, things that make you feel calmer, very effective. Sometimes medications can be helpful for individuals. Mm -hmm. um, then the next thing is therapy, uh, where you can work with somebody else, but it's still a presence of somebody else. Uh, and you can do things mm -hmm. like EMDR, the eye movement desensitization, which works extremely well. Um, and of course, you can take psychedelics. But again, uh, like, you know, it's a very alarming thing happening with psychedelics. As it is beginning to become legal, we'll come to Australia also. Uh, people more and more want to make a quick buck and give people a drug and send them off. 
which is completely the wrong way to do. You need to do this in a very safe setting with people around you who are there for you as you have this very deep spiritual experience. And so you could do it by yourself, but boy, I would very much be opposed to that. Uh, it's mm. still, uh, we, we need people around us to guide us and to help us and to watch over us and stuff like that. And so uh, all of the mm. treatments, that, uh, except the notable exception of neurofeedback, which I'm, uh, you know, I've done serious research in, can be very effective. Um, most of it is interpersonal. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And even even the neurofeedback, I imagine I'd need someone yeah. like you to, <laughs> to interpret my results a little bit to set me up and put the electrodes on my head and stuff. So I, um, I some of the best neurofeedback people I know live in live next to the woods in Melbourne. Moshe Pearl in, in yeah. Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So the neurofeedback, um, actually, I've got a um, we interviewed uh, just last week. Actually, it was Dave Asprey, and he he did some work on this. And for him, forgiveness was a big part of it. He set himself up, and he just realized that there was some certain triggers. And the biggest one for him was forgiveness. And as soon as he just started forgiving people, like wow, his system literally started changing, um, and the pattern started to move. So, yeah, I find that I find that really fascinating. I. We've touched on the topic, so I, I feel like I want to just ask you the questions around yeah, it. Yeah, so only five minutes. In terms five, of like four minutes left only, yeah. <laughs> so tell me, um, psychedelic therapies, what's going on in there? Um, is it that you get a different perspective um, when you're when you're in these states? And again, like you said, set and setting, like being around um, you know, safe place is important. Um, but how, like, what are you finding? But, in, in clearly, you but, but, but all of these agents do in different ways, and we don't really haven't pinpointed yet what is best for what. Uh, all these agents really uh, uproot you from your primal orientation in life. Uh, that mm. you make, for a moment, there's new brain connections, so you see the world in a completely different way. And so, particularly mm. when you're... Uh, very frightened, very scared, very much trauma-driven. You live in a very narrow reality where the outcome is always, I'm going to get hurt. And, and to mm -hmm. be transported into a different reality where you oftentimes experience a certain universe, uh, unity with the uh, world around you, it's very common elements of seeing yourself in a much larger perspective. Um, and very much this notion of an individual perspective oftentimes it disappears you really feel like oh i'm just a part of a large universe that's flowing and i'm here today not tomorrow but the universe is goes on and so for a moment to get the experience and to have you to notice your own experiences here yeah that happened it's part of this whole big complex thing that happens and then after the drug wears off you go back to or where you were before, but you have gotten a perspective. Perspective is almost too cognitive a word. You have had an experience of that the universe is much bigger than you are, and that you also usually end up with a deep sense of gratitude of, boy, mm. the world is a magical place, but 
I am a very small part of the universe. Uh, it's really mm. the issue of ego and self-importance. So it disappears on those on those drugs. Mm, and that perspective shifts um, <laughs> helps us shift our relationship. You, of course, you you may hate yourself, but it's very egocentric. You're not mm. open to the world because you're always taking care of this creature that is so hurt and upset and frightened and in danger. So it's a very egocentric position to be in trauma. Mm. I imagine releasing some of those traumas would be quite challenging um, when you're having those lupus perspective shifts, like it would, you know, and again, encouraging that set and setting that is a safe one. Well, yeah. that's it for now. <laughs> it would be an absolute pleasure to drop in connect dr Bessel, man like really thank you so much like you've you've dedicated um so much of your life to investigating uh, trauma so that you know other people can live um trauma like you know traumaless lives it's it's such a blessing so i want to thank you for your time and your energy and your blessings here today but also you know it's it's a lifetime's work that you've put into this so thank you so thank much you. for this, who you are and what you're doing and um yeah look forward to staying in touch in the future Thanks for listening in to another amazing episode of The Inspired Evolution. If you're loving these episodes, make your way across to YouTube, click subscribe. Fresh episodes are launched every Monday with highlights being released throughout the week. Thank you so much. And hey guys, just so you know, a lot of love, heart, soul and work goes into these episodes. So if you could, please leave us a five-star review and comment on iTunes. I love reading your positive feedback. It fans the flames of the passion to continue to create and help you live the life that you love. Thank you so much for your wonderful feedback. I can't wait to see you again in the next episode. Big love from Amrit. And remember to stay inspired to evolve. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 